welcome to yet another edition of Comfortably Anum, the official podcast of the Umbrella Society. My name is Blake Anderson. I am still the program's manager here at Umbrella, and I'm also still the host of this podcast. And yes, I am still coming to you uh, today from beautiful Victoria, British Columbia, on the traditional unceded territories of the Lekongan-speaking people. Uh, and we're now closing in on the last leg of this season of the podcast. Um, I've had tons of people reach out to me lately telling me how much they've been appreciating these podcasts, which to me is so nice to hear because I feel that these stories of recovery are so important. Um, you know, with substance use related uh, deaths at an all time high in this province, we can feel hopeless with the current state of things. But for me, these stories of recovery bring hope and remind us that recovery is possible. I often feel like we have such a cynical view of addiction uh, in our society, in our community, uh, that so many individuals are beyond help. Um, but I know that with proper supports, interventions, and determination, anyone can recover from addiction. Um, I hope that these podcasts keep that hope alive and they might inspire a change in both attitude and action. So today's podcast is a really special one for me as we have a guest uh, on the program who is a Foundation House alumni and someone whom which I have had the privilege to work with during a pivotal time in their recovery. Uh, so Scott, uh, he has a very profound story um, and a recovery journey unlike anyone I have ever met. Scott not only had the you know ability to work incredibly hard on his recovery from substances, but he's had to recover from serious physical injuries and mental health challenges as well. So the approach that Scott has taken has been both unique and comprehensive. Scott worked tirelessly to find interventions and supports that work for him and that will sustain him for years to come. So I'll let Scott dive into more detail for you about all this. Um, I'm really happy that he's taking the time to come onto this podcast and to share his story. Okay, Scott. For one, it's great to see you. I think, yeah, it's been a while. We only have an opportunity every once in a while to, uh, to catch up in our busy lives, but, uh, you know, really great to see you. I think you're, you're looking well, but also, um, it's great to have you on the podcast. I have been wanting to get you on the podcast since this started actually, uh, you know, two, two seasons ago. So, you know, really appreciate you taking the time to come in. It's, uh, it's snowing outside. And so this is a little bit more of a venture to get here. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So yeah. You know, obviously, you've seen some, you know, real profound success in your recovery. I know that you uh, track your recovery by days, <laughs> and we are getting up there. Uh, where are we at? We're in the 2000s. Yeah, I think we're, oh, I think we're about past 2100 days. 2100 days. Which, for viewers at home, that's just five, five and a half years. Yeah. Coming up on six, I suppose. That's amazing. And, and you know, I, I guess, you know, I, we met each other. I don't know how long into your journey when, when, when you came to Foundation House, I think, you know, it was, uh, I was the housing manager at the time. And uh, that was, you know, for me, man, it was, uh, it, it was really cool to see someone uh, doing recovery for one very differently uh, than, than the rest of folks, <laughs> but, uh, but also just how, how unique your recovery was. Um, you know, that was, that was something also too, just how smart of a guy you are. I, I remember having a lot of one-on-ones and, and you talk, I'm like, wow, this guy is, uh, you know, expanding my horizons and, and my, you know, it was, it was really cool. Um, I, I felt like we really fed off each other and you kind of gave, gave me some insights that, that I've kind of taken with me and, and, you know, working, uh, you know, in, in this field, but also just in my own personal life. So, you know, I really appreciate you introduced me to meditation, which I still practice. Too. Oh, good. So, good, 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 good. Glad yeah. to hear that. Yeah. So listen, um, I, I don't know if I have even, you know, I know you very well and, but I don't know if I've you know, go back, you know, to know a lot of your backstory. And, and mm -hmm. this is usually where I like to start is getting a little bit of a backstory to, to see where, you know, um, addiction and, you know, mental health kind of, you know, became prevalent in your life. Uh, and then, you know, also what kind of led you to, you know, being in recovery essentially. So, um, yeah, for, for you, where, where did, uh, you know, addiction and mental health really start to, you know, show its face in, in your life? Yeah. So, um, uh, my psychotic illness reared its ugly head when I was 21, um, had a pretty nasty episode of, um, like they call it a floridly psychotic episode when I was 21, uh, the summer. And, um, that really turned everything upside down from then on. I thought I was just a regular old guy. Um, you know, probably smoking too much weed, drinking too much booze, uh, up until then. But then. Uh, it really hit like hit me like a brick wall. Mm. Um, 
and changed everything. Um, so, I mean, if I, looking back on it, I probably can identify some addictive habits that came up in high school. Like I was definitely playing way too many video games, drinking too much tea. In fact, like I drank so much tea in high school that when I got to UVic at the age of 18, people thought I was a smoker because my teeth were so stained. Oh, okay. so much tea I drank in high school. Interesting. Um, and then, um, but yeah, I mean, video games and tea, that's not really, shouldn't be too much of a big deal. Right. Uh, that just happens to be what I've identified as being my first, Your um, first addiction. My first sure. addictions. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, I didn't really get out too much in high school. So then when I had all this freedom, I moved out of my parents' home. Came Like I grew up in Ottawa okay. and moved from Ottawa to Victoria at the age of 18. And I had all this freedom, had all the spare time and money. And so I hit the bottle and the bong pretty hard. So between the ages of 18 and 21, I was probably stoned every day just mm -hmm. as high as I could get based on what I could afford um, and then like big red flag when I turned 19 the very first bottle of booze I bought in BC was like a two six of cheap whiskey right um, which you know looking back on it it's like I said it's, it's a bit of a red flag so then yeah so between the age of 18 and 21 a lot of weed a lot of booze a lot of partying um, not a lot of studying. Right. Okay. <laughs> I, I was at, this is embarrassing, but I, I've been at, I, I was at UVic for like seven years with nothing to show for it. Okay. Um, I'm working on that. <laughs> okay. There you go. Making up for it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a lot of, a lot of weed, a lot of boozing in between the age of 18 and 21. And I guess I have a genetic predisposition towards psychosis. Right. which presented itself in a big way um, in the summer when I was 21 years old. Ended up in a closed ward for a couple of weeks. Um, luckily, and this will come up a lot throughout our conversation, I'm one of the luckiest people you'll ever meet. Hmm. Um, I responded to medication. Okay. Um, Can I ask, did this, did psychosis, did it kind of just come on out of nowhere? Did you, were there any kind of warning signs or was it just like this episode that kind of, like a tidal wave that just took took you over. I was blindsided. Blinds, okay. Yeah. Um, had you asked me when I was twenty if I thought I would you know, come down with a psychotic illness, I would have said no. Of course not. I'm I'm, I'm a normal guy. Maybe mm -hmm. I drink and smoke a little bit much, but I'm just partying. I just right. thought I was a normal kid partying. I just thought those Canadians did. Right. Um. So. I mean, I, my mom got me did a hearing test when I was like 10 or 11 or something. And apparently I would hit the little button to hear it and beep when there was no beep. So maybe, right. maybe if you paid a psychologist thousands and thousands of dollars, we can dive, we could dive into my childhood sure. and find some hints, but right. to, from for my, you, yeah. yeah, from my perspective, I was blindsided. Okay. And, um, yeah, I mean that summer when I turned 21, I was, uh, high on some weed that was probably laced for three days without knowing it and then two months later that's when i had the episode and what happened was i like i just lost about lost out on a lot of sleep got stressed yeah. and to this day that's what i have to look out for like okay. all through my 20s that's those those were my signals for um having more psychotic episodes because I, I have had further psychotic episodes from the one i was 21 like right. the one at 21 that was the worst of it okay. um but there have been others um, and yeah, sleep is the big factor for me. And again, I'm really lucky in that, um, all I need when I start to go off the rails is to catch up on sleep. Okay. That's, that's, that's the not, biggest intervention. Yeah. It's important. Right, it's, right. it seems to work the best. Um, I mean, in addition to medication, I, like I am still on a medication today. Um, and Vega Prinza for those who are interested, uh, like I get an injection four times a year. And then I'm tickety-boo. Right. Um, so, yeah. Um, 21 came around, had the psychotic thing. And um, got in with a psychiatrist who was telling me not to drink, not to smoke marijuana. Hmm. Uh, and I didn't take it too seriously. Okay. Um, like, I stopped getting stoned by myself. But every time I was drunk at a party, people would peer pressure me into uh, using marijuana. 
Um, so from the age of 21 straight through to the age of 32, 32 is when I got sober finally. Mm. Um, I was trying to quit weed, but I keep, kept getting peer pressured into it. Now, booze, booze is another thing. I didn't think way back when that booze is an issue for me. I just thought right. I was, I wanted to be as normal as possible. Right. You know, it's common for people who get, get into mental health issues like that for them to be resistant to the idea that they have something. Right. It was for me. I just wanted to be normal. I didn't want to admit to myself that I really couldn't drink. I right. really couldn't smoke weed. Couldn't do anything. Could I really had to. It'd be really mindful of your practices, essentially, yeah, how you're conducting yeah. your life. Yeah. Yeah. So I was quite resistant through my 20s. I just wanted right. a party. Yeah. And I did. And so in my early 20s, from continuing from the age of 21 through to about 25, 26, I was drunk every weekend, drinking every day. Um, I went through a period, a couple of years, where I was blackout. Uh, I would get blackout drunk on a regular basis. Right. Um, and maybe that doesn't sound too bad. I mean, you hear stories of some guys who are blackout drunk all the time right. but if you mix that in with a psychotic illness right. such as i had it can be a quite dangerous mix so um fast forward a little bit we were playing with the medications um like i started on a couple wound up on the one i'm on today um, which i'm happy with but um <laughs> i've been through so many jobs oh my god yeah. i've had i've had as many jobs as i've been as years I've been alive as an adult. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, didn't like, I, I was drunk at a lot of jobs, unfortunately. Um, so the, so the school wasn't, wasn't sticking too much. The, the job is <laughs> right. So it was hard, to, hard to kind of get some real structure in your life essentially. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, um, I just wasn't, I was spinning my wheels. Right. All through my twenties, my twenties were a wasted decade, right. and then um, I turned thirty and um, found out I was going to be a dad. Okay, and that's when I decided times times now, times now to quit. So uh, the summer I was thirty, I uh, started my relapses because I I didn't just decide to not quit one to quit one day and then that was it. Right, I went through solid two years of relapse i think i relapsed four or five times on booze weed um cigarettes so this has got to be obviously a different um you know part of of your journey when you know in your 20s it seemed like you just weren't really giving it as much credence or power as you're like hey this is just something i do it's not a big deal all of a sudden when you want to quit and you continually relapse that obviously kind of brought into perspective a little bit more the seriousness of your of, mm -hmm. of what was going on mm -hmm. yeah the gravity of it yeah, yeah sure um, so I was relapsing, going through jobs. My ex, we were on again and off again for a bit. And finally we were off again permanently. And then I had another bad psychotic break. I've had probably no more than five bad episodes through my life, mm -hmm. which is again, super lucky. If you, if you consider the scope of how psychotic illnesses can go, mine's mm -hmm. quite mild. Right. However, I um, I did end up jumping off the parkade at the Royal Jubilee. Wow, um, that's not a. It's four stories, is it not? Like that's a. That's yeah, a, I think right. it's about fifty feet. Don't right. quote me. I've yeah. never actually gone into their specs. It's five short stories. Yeah, right. Um, that fence that they have on top of the parkade now—that's that's mine. It's my fence. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> um. Was this after a after a stint in the hospital or going into the hospital? Oh, or what, yeah. What led, what led up so, to that? So, I mean, I, I'd been in and out of the Archie Cortinal Center. Where, where are they calling it now? Um, psychiatric short stay at the Royal Jubilee. The Whatever the name for it. Pez? Psych Pez, that's it. Okay. Pez, yeah. I'd been in and out of Pez for a bunch of times. And in fact, for a while through my 20s, it had been my go-to because I could go there, catch up on sleep, come out of the psychotic episode. Okay. Now, this is what I tried to do when I was 32 on my last um, relapse when everything just blew up in my face. Um, I had been quitting booze, like I said, and I had quit in December. And then, I, like in February, quit cigarettes. 
and around February as well, quit CBD. I had been taking CBD mm. uh, for anxiety. And so I quit booze, quit cigarettes, quit um, CBD, had been, I started some trauma therapy um, for, some for some intrusive thoughts I was having. And then, yeah, um, I, I just became psychotic and wasn't coming out of it. Like it lasted and lasted. So I ended up, I, I did go to Pez and um, I wasn't the experience I was expecting. They didn't mm -hmm. give me a bed. Um, they wrote me a prescription for Ativan to calm me down and then, you know, asked me some questions. Um, you know, what are your thoughts? What are your plans? Are, are you suicidal? Mm -hmm. And I must have said, no, I must have said the magic words that they needed to hear to not want to keep me. Right. Um, so then went home, relapsed on booze. Um, my parents took me to my family physician the next day and he said, no, look, Scott, I don't think you're okay. Go back, go back to Pez. I've spoken to the psychi uh, psychiatrist. He's going to speak with you because the day before I'd gone to Pez and I'll, I only I only ended up speaking to a nurse and the on-call physician. I didn't actually end up speaking to a psychiatrist, psychiatrist. Okay. the first time I, the first time there during this episode. Um, so went back. So the next day my parents are, this is so sad. Um, parents are driving me back to the hospital and parked the car on the parkade and I just, they just turned their back on me for 10 seconds and that was it. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, but things I, so I hit a bottom. I had a really hard bottom. Right. And, um, what was the impact of, you know, the physical impact? Obviously it's of like, yeah, that was a, that's a long fall. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I got exquisitely lucky again. Um, no spinal cord damage, no head injury. Um, wow, I wa no I'm walking injury. around today. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've had 14 reconstructive surgeries. I was in a wheelchair for seven months. I was in a hospital for four months. Um, right. I wasn't allowed to put any weight on my feet for three months. I think three or four months. Anyways. Um, so it gave me a really strong motivating factor going mm. forward. Um, um, coming out of hospital, like I, it was lucky that I had already had a bit of a track record with sobriety right. because I didn't find it too hard to stay sober while I was lying in a hospital, but apparently some people are quite crafty even in hospital and mm -hmm. still managed to keep their addictions going despite being in a hospital bed. And I, um, I wasn't one of them. And I had already been accessing AOT addictions outpatient treatment with Island health right. that they were my go-to. They've always been my go-to actually, um, in terms of, uh, learning skills to get well. So I was applying some of the skills I had. I, I had, and I was keyed into services as well. I had an addictions counselor um, while I was in hospital um, who checked in with me every so often. Like I had, obviously I was accessing services, accessing services in hospital right. um, with the psychiatric team. Like I got some talk therapy, which was very helpful mm. um, with some psychiatrists. Um, tweaked my medication a little bit. And, um, yeah, started, um, the journey towards lasting sobriety because my sobriety wasn't lasting before that. Right. And I'm aware these days that had I not had such a drastic incident happen, it's a chance I might not have stayed sober to this day. Right. Like it really was a huge wake up call. Right. Um, so yeah, from the hospital four months all the surgeries I uh, wound up at uh, Comerford, which is a um, second stage housing for people with mental health and substance use issues run by Island health. Um, so I was there for seven months and then uh, while I was there, I uh, met uh, an umbrella worker um, and we were just waiting for me to get into the wheelchair to get me into foundation house. Um, and, to be able to shower standing. Um, 
and made it. So yeah, four months in the hospital, seven months at Comerford, and then 19 months, I think I was at Foundation House. And Foundation House was just amazing. Um, just the connections I've made. Like I'm still in, I'm still in contact with like four, five, six guys that right. I lived with at a Foundation yeah. House. We, they, I've got a, we've got a games room at my apartment building with a pool table. Right. Come over and shoot the shit, shoot some pool. Um, and yeah, Foundation House was the place where I felt most stable for a long time. Like I didn't feel stable through my twenties. Clearly, I'm, I was just a drunken fool through right. my 20s, throwing psychosis. Um, and then, you know, the first couple of years of my 30s, I was going through my relapses. Um, and yeah, landing at Foundation House, um, it just felt secure. If I had a sense of belonging there, mm. everyone was so welcoming. We were all, you know, we had a shared experience, obviously. Right. So Foundation House did, did a lot for me. Um, and then from foundation house, I moved into market housing. I, uh, wound up getting a rental supplement for Island health. So I'm able to, li I'm living independently now. I've been in a place for three years and, um, yeah, going on six years sober. Um, and I've had a lot of therapy. Right. <laughs> um, and I'm just loving life. Like the, the fast past five years of my life I've just been by far the best years of my life that's amazing easily that's quality yeah yeah well I mean you know what for, for me it was it was really amazing to see you know I was I was part of your you know 19 month journey at, at Foundation House and um, I always thought it was amazing that you were kind of like managing like three uh, three different recoveries at the same time you were you know recovering from your physical um, you know, uh, challenges that, you know, from the injuries and watching you, uh, you know, go through surgeries, but also watching you, you start to move better. When you first got into foundation house, you couldn't <laughs> go down the stairs, yeah. you know, walking, yeah. you actually had to kind of shot. And then all of a sudden I remember there was actually a, a an, an evening when I was showing up for the, the Wednesday night meeting and someone was kind of running up the stairs behind me and I turned around and it was you. And I, it was, it was, it was actually yeah. a very emotional moment for me because mm. I saw you you know, just physically at the beginning, it was, everything was such a struggle. And to, just to see how much work you'd put in to get to the point where you can like run upstairs, obviously, you know, you're always going to have physical challenges, but to see how far you had come physically alone was astounding and, and knowing how much work that put in, but also are working on your mental health recovery at the same time, which is incredibly hard work and trying to stay on top of, of, you know, that side of things. And then your sobriety on top of that, um, I, I found that, you know, to be just remarkable. Um, so to see that and, and to see the connections that you made with everybody in the house was great. And also to see now too, that, you know, you are going back to school as such an intelligent guy, like that you're actually be able to put, you know, that into practice again and, and see some success in university, I think is, is fantastic. But obviously like the amount of work that you were putting in on yourself was, was more than I'd seen anybody else do because I feel like you, you understood the gravity of your situation and took it very seriously. You had a ton of interventions. You weren't somebody who went the, the, the traditional route, the AA route, the, you know, you have a very unique, uh, you know, the interventions that work for you are, are kind of unique to you in, in a certain respect. I, I'm not sure not just to you, but, uh, you know, I was, I was always very impressed, um, you know, with, with the interventions that you came on. Meditation was one that I, I remember you came to me and said, man, you guys are just, you know, too AA heavy every single morning. We're doing the big book. I want to do a meditation day. And we start up a meditation Tuesday and mm -hmm. that still mm -hmm. uh, lasts. It's really? That, oh, that that's awesome. Left, right. You know, so um, really cool that, that you were really pushing alternative interventions. I, I'd love to hear what worked for you? What were the interventions that, that really, you know, for spoke to you? And, and, you know, I know that this is something that you're really passionate about. Yeah. So brought my little cheat sheet here. Okay. Um, what worked for me was uh, talk therapy, individual talk therapy, uh, meditate, mindfulness, mindfulness, meditation. And then the really two big ones that did the most were mindfulness based cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness based acceptance commitment therapy, um, as well as AOT. Um, so yeah, I, I gave AA an honest effort 
and it just wasn't for me. Um, so <laughs> I consider myself just to be a bag of meat bones and neurons and those neurons can be trained. Um, so our minds tend to do, our minds get good at doing what our minds tend to do. Um, sort of like, uh, like a becoming can habits become canyons across the landscape of our minds. Like habits start out like a little trickle that becomes a creek that becomes a stream, a river, and then a canyon. And for people like myself, um, who have mental health and addictions issues, um, we have unhelpful habits of mind, mm. like canyons across a, our landscape. And it's, it's easy to go into them. Like our minds tend to, do, our mind, it's sort of like, um, inertia. Our minds do it. Our our minds get good at doing what we tend to do usually. Um, hence addiction, mental health. So what's lucky for me is I had the strong motivating factor coming off that serious injury. Um, and so it, it is possible to create new canyons in your mind, new habits with practice and effort. Um, so talk therapy is, I, I think everyone would benefit from talk, from talk therapy. Sure. Like you don't need mental health and substance use issues to benefit from talk therapy. Absolutely. Um, just meeting with a professional to get the poison out, someone to bounce ideas off of mm -hmm. and to learn like talk therapists are, educated professionals who have lots who have lots of input very compassionate they want to help um so talk therapy has been throughout my recovery like i've had a number of talk therapists uh, i think i'm up to five or six now mm -hmm. um and then mindfulness um really was opened a lot of doors uh, I started practicing mindfulness while I was in the hospital, uh, still in a wheelchair. There's a nice little fountain at the Royal Jubilee, the rock fountain in the courtyard. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I had toyed with my, uh, meditation for a little bit, um, leading up to the jump and it, nothing really connected until <laughs> one of my fellow patients recommended a meditation, which was fuck it and let that shit go. Okay. Um, and that really clicked for me. And so that, that's still part of the mantra that when I choose to meditate these days, just let it go, let okay. that shit go, let go. Um, it's one of the mantras that like even, even saying it now, I can feel my, I can feel my head relaxing <laughs> Okay, just yeah. cause I'm just, I've been trained. Like I said, like it's right. a new habit that my mind has. It's, it's forming a new Canyon right. in my mind. Just let it go. Um, so I started practicing meditation in the hospital. Fuck it. Let that shit go. Was and it something that you gravitate to right away? Did it take some time? You know, my experience with, you know, in my meditation, it didn't work the way I wanted it to right away. It took practice. Yeah. Like you say, it's, yeah. it's, you know, a canyon or a muscle, whatever, whatever you look at it, it's, it's something that needs to develop over, mm -hmm. over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did, was it kind of short? short goings at first and then you kind of became oh yeah no no it wasn't longer than five minutes at a time gotcha yeah just quick little quick little sessions mm -hmm. and like I'm, I'm a big fan of that generally even even today my meditations usually don't last more than like 30 seconds if that like okay. I, I have i have a certain guided meditation medita uh, memorized that i work work through sometimes i work through it on the bus in the hot tub at the beach so that makes it super accessible. You're not having to scribe out an hour here or there to oh, yeah. do this. You're like, I can do this wherever I am. Yeah. So he's like micro yeah. sessions, essentially. As long as no one's talking to me. Sure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, no, like I said, I, I had tried a couple meditations in early recovery while I was still relapsing that I didn't connect with. Then I had this strong motivating factor, had all this time and found this. It was cathartic. Like, yeah. I love catharsis. Like I have a lot of, you know, my psychotic illness is a mood disorder. Um, so I have difficulty. I struggle with my emotions. So uh, the fuck it, let that shit go. That was a cathartic 
meditation mm. just to release of negative emotion and so that's why I, I think that's why i connected with it so well um and that was just that was just the, the little push that got the rock rolling down the hill okay in terms of practicing mindfulness because when i got to comerford i got keyed into the mental wellness day center at okay. eric martin which is where I learned the CBT, learned the ACT, uh, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy and Acceptance Commitment Therapy. Um, and I learned, I was just like a sponge. Like I worked, mm. like you said, like I, I did work quite hard. Uh, I did a lot. I, I went to as much psychosocial educational programming as I could, right. paid attention and did the homework. Right. Um, and mindfulness... Mindfulness is so great. Um, to for a quick little definition, mm -hmm. mindfulness is paying attention on purpose in the moment, without judgment and with compassion. Mm. And what's really great about mindfulness for people such as myself, um, it activates your prefrontal cortex, right. and your prefrontal cortex is responsible for your executive function, your impulse control, your decision making, emotional regulation. So for someone like myself, it came off a decade's worth of booze and drugs, um, developing, strengthening a part of my mind that's responsible for impulse control. That's huge. Mm -hmm. Um, and it led to, um, where I am today in terms of the cognitive behavioral therapy aspect of it. Whereas where I'm skillfully mindful of my thoughts at all times, right? I am just, I'm able to be aware of the quality of the thoughts I'm having. Like, am I in default default mode network is when you're just monkey mind, they call it. You're having whatever thoughts, your thoughts are all over the place uh, as opposed to being mindful. Uh, mindful is when you're focusing. Um, and so my default mode network um, is usually pretty happy. You know, I've, I've, I live a really good life these days. Mm -hmm. Um, and gratitude comes quite easily to me, luckily. Right. Um, but, you know, sometimes I will have, I will perseverate um, and I'm able to identify it and I've got skills mm -hmm. to deal with it. Like that skills is where it came down to with me. I mean, to mention that my uh, experience with recovery has been unique is to mention that like I, I learned skills and I practiced skills. Right. That's, that's what I wanted to do. That's what I've done. Um, and so I'm able, sometimes I'm able to identify when I'm being delusional, I'm like on it immediately. And I've got habits of mind that I've practiced enough to know that I can just use them. Um, and it, it started off with being skillfully mindful of the kind of thoughts I'm having. So cognitive behavioral therapy is, um, like one of the central tenets is the idea that um, my behaviors affect how I think and feel, how I think affects my behaviors and how I feel and how I'm feeling affects my thinking and behaviors. I mean, you've seen the triangle. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Um, so if I am able to fix the way I'm thinking, I should be able to behave and feel better. And gotcha. um, one of the ways to do that one of the central ways to do that with CBT is the thought records. So uh, my, my, my best experience with thought records was the five column thought record where you've got, um, you've got a situation. I've got my feelings about the situation, my thoughts about the situation, the behaviors that come from my thoughts and then balanced thoughts. So the, the classic one right. with CBT is, you know, I'm walking down the sidewalk. I see a friend, I wave at them. They blank me. And the, the fact is I walked past my friend. They didn't greet me. Sure. I, maybe the emotion is I feel bad. I feel angry. Um, maybe I'm depressed. The thoughts I could have about that was, or maybe I've pissed off my friend. My friend doesn't like me anymore. Right. Um, and then the behavior is to isolate. Maybe, maybe I, um, and maybe I end up relapsing because right. I feel like my friend doesn't like me anymore. Um, and then the balanced thoughts are how to come up with balanced thoughts is one of the things I love about CBT is that it focuses on facts. 
Right. It really boils things, it boils life down to what the facts are and separating facts from what your thoughts are. What, right. What you've told yourself, the story you've created. Yeah. Yeah. Because we have, I, I have all these automatic thoughts that come up when situations such as like my friend blanks me. I might like have all these negative thoughts, which are just thoughts and able being able to identify what the facts are and then come up with balanced thoughts such as, you know, my friend, maybe my friend's having a bad day. Maybe they just genuinely didn't see me. Right. Um, there could be any variety of reasons why my friend blanked me and maybe the next time I see them, they'll apologize. Sure. Um, that's so one of the, that's one of the things I really love about CBT is that focuses on facts and, um, changing the script. Right. Um, so the next one down the list was uh, acceptance commitment therapy. And that worked really well for the intrusive thoughts I was having. And so the way acceptance commitment therapy works, um, it, it is again, a mindfulness based, uh, therapy. So I am again, skillfully mindful of the quality of thoughts I'm having. And the idea behind it is to accept everything about myself and the world without judgment with compassion and then commit to commit to living a life according to my values. Okay. Um, I'm still stuck on the part where I'm figuring out what my values are and how to live by sure. them. Right. It's a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. It's a process for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's not easy and it's, right. it's ever changing. Like right. I'm not the same person I was three years ago, right. let alone 10 years ago. So it's this working document in essence mm -hmm. that you're working on. Yeah. So, um, there's a good quote by Lao Tzu to describe how to practice acceptance and love it. Yeah. Yeah. So quoting Lao Tzu here, water is fluid, soft and yielding, but water will wear away rock, which is rigid and cannot yield. As a rule, that which is fluid, soft, and yielding will overcome that which is rigid and hard. Wow. That's amazing. It's from the Tao Te Ching, I believe. Is that? Oh, you got me. Yeah. I do not know. It is. That is. Okay. My, my dad was a Taoist. So that, oh, that really? really speaks oh, to me. Yeah. cool. So that's yeah. how I was, I was brought up. Uh, yeah. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, nice. Absolutely. That's, that's quite profound, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a great lesson mm -hmm. in terms of just going with the flow. And, um, like there's a couple different ways to, um, practice acceptance, like one that works for me well these days that I actually just learned from a recent talk therapist, which is, um, it just goes to show like it's worth putting in the effort consistently. Like even today, I'm still putting in effort because how I practice acceptance now, I only learned like three months ago, right. which is, um, to be the sky that contains the storm. Like if my thoughts, feelings, and behaviors are the storm, right. I am the sky, unaffected by it, right. and the storm will pass. Right. Um, and then uh, the par one of the paradigms in ACT as well is the idea that <laughs> it's sort of like playing tug of war with a monster. If I've got unhelpful thoughts. And I really, I let my unhelpful thoughts take over and I really get into them and I sink, I spiral into mm -hmm. my unhelpful thinking. It's like playing tug of war with a monster. I can struggle against that rope as much as I want and I'm never going to win. Right. The idea with ACT is to let go of the rope. Right. Not, not even take part in that struggle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. And like maybe the monster sticks around, mm -hmm. but I'm not struggling with it anymore. Right. Um, and I guess it's one of those things that, I mean, and I always kind of say this is practicing it, kind of making it almost an everyday discipline to kind of get yourself so that when the storm does come or when, you know, you do get into these moments, it comes a little bit more naturally. I think sometimes people wait until they're in crisis mode to really start activating this stuff. But if they haven't been using it when things are going well, if they haven't been in the practice of it, well, that's really hard to employ at those moments of crisis. Right. So it is kind of like a, like a daily practice or a discipline essentially that you get yourself into. Right. You yeah. Know? Rome, yeah. Rome wasn't built in a day. Right. It does take, you need to build the infrastructure. Yeah. 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 And I, I, it is a daily practice for me, like with the mood disorder, which is a permanent condition. I do have anxious unhelpful thoughts mm. often enough. And I just jump on it immediately. I accept it. I accept the thoughts. 
I accept myself. I forgive the thoughts. I forgive myself and I practice compassion towards myself for being in this situation to begin with. And that, right. that seems to be the little, um, the quick little 10 second practice gotcha. that I have just daily, every day. Right. Uh, quick, quick checklist. <laughs> yeah. Right, that's, right. that's the formula that seems to work for me. Okay. I think because it's cathartic, like the practicing compassion, practicing forgiveness, which I would want to touch on in a bit, um, are really good ways to activate uh, catharsis. Right. Um, and yeah, neurons that fire together, wire together. So like you said, if, if I'm not practicing my skills on a regular basis, then I'm not going to associate those practices with feeling good. Mm. So when things start to go, if I haven't wired my neurons together such that I associate my helpful practices with getting better, then they won't be my go-to. Right. That's actually a really great way to put it, right? Like yeah. You, you need to actually have that association beforehand because then when you're in that tight situation where, you know, maybe your frontal lobe is coming offline, that's what it's going to hold on to, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, I like that. Yeah. yeah. Neurons that fire together, wire together. Yeah. That's a little yeah. nugget from Uvic, I think. Totally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, I've, and I've heard that before, but I haven't heard in that application. I really like that. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it works well. Yeah. Um, yeah. What did I miss? AOT. God, I love sure. AOT. Um, professional help talk to group, group therapy, and they really focus on the psychosocial education aspect of recovery. Mm -hmm. um, teaching skills, go home, practice the skills. Um, there are uh, groups to talk and get the poison out. Mm -hmm. um, And you get a little bit of everything at AOT. Right. You get the cognitive like comprehensive, behavior. yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't say that, you know, mental health gets everything right, but I think that has been such an institution, you know, with, with addiction and outpatient. You know, we don't have enough outpatient, you know, uh, treatment, I think, in town, right? You know, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that's kind of across the board in our country, you know, that we don't have enough places where people can access kind of a comprehensive look and, and also find what works for them as well, right? Out of, in, in those interventions. And, you know, recovery is definitely an individual journey and you really have to have the book thrown at you to figure out what's going to work for you, taking little interventions here and there mm -hmm. to kind of build your own recovery mm -hmm. program, right? So, yeah. I'm a big, uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of taking what you can from everything, uh, saying yes to everything right. and seeing what works. Sure. So I, I really, I gave the 12 steps an honest effort. Mm -hmm. Didn't work. So I got a lot of good help from talk therapists, AOT and the mental wellness day center. And I just took what worked for me from a whole bunch of different sources. I, we haven't even touched on the pain clinic. I was just going to, it was just went through my head. Cause I remember you had quite a profound experience with the pain clinic. Obviously, uh, after your, you know, um, after your accident, you were, in a significant amount of pain and this is pain management is something that um it's going to be an aspect of your life um can you talk a little bit about a pain clinic because i think this is you know I, I look at you know pain management a lot of times as being the root of addiction you know where if people are in profound pain it's a it's a you know really easy to get into addiction to try to you know escape that but what does the pain clinic do or what did it do for you yeah so the pain clinic for me was just the educational portion of it um a lot of people go to the pain clinic to get uh, nerve blocks. Mm -hmm. um, that wasn't for me. And my doctor didn't want that for me. Uh, so I did the educational portion of it. And it's, uh, oh, I forget how many weeks it is. I think it's four, five, six weeks, something like that. A couple, couple classes a week where you learn all the latest and greatest science behind what, what causes pain and how to manage it. And apparently, even just learning about the science behind pain just that learning itself right. helps manage pain. Interesting. Yeah. And there was an also, uh, a mindfulness course as well at the pain clinic where um, my big takeaway where there was the uh, mindfulness-based interoception technique um, where I, if I'm having a flare-up of pain, I focus on the middle of the pain and then focus on four aspects of it, the motion, temperature, mass, and cohesiveness. Um, 
And what's nice too is it works for anger. Mm. Um, and it is again psychosocial education, which is what I connect with most. And so like these days I do take I take Tylenol every day, unfortunately, but because of my time with the pain clinic, I'm, I'm able to live a really decent quality of life. Right. I am still in pain most of the time, worse in the evenings than the mornings, but because of everything I learned and again, it was skills, um, I'm able to maintain a good quality of life. Right. That's amazing. So yeah, you, you tackled it. You, you, you looked at ways that you can, um, yeah, train your brain to kind of accept and, and deal with the reality of the situation essentially. Yeah. That's a really yeah. good way of putting it. Right. Huh. Cool. Yeah. And I mean, so between all this, obviously this is still a, a big part of your life here. The, the practices that you've and skills you've learned something that you've committed to basically is just a part of your day to day life. Which is, I think, what a lot of people, you know, in, in recovery or people that might be struggling with recovery, I think, miss is the discipline kind of aspect or the commitment to making this part of a lifestyle. You know, I, I see a lot of people that go into treatment and they go gung-ho and they get out. And they might go gung-ho for a couple couple months and then all of a sudden they just kind of let everything trail off. It's not a... It's, it's a, it's a distance race, here, you know, and it is really, you know, changing that. And I think that you're somebody who I recognize that really early on, you, you put what you learned into practice and that's it. You can learn the skills. If you're not putting into practice, well, you're going to be susceptible for relapse for, you know, susceptible for, for, you know, a, a great host of things, mm -hmm. you know, falling back into the old falling canyons. Into, yeah, absolutely. Right. So it is something that, you know, and so I, I think that, you know, it's, it's cool that you, found so many interventions and such a comprehensive, but it's also really cool that you recognize the necessity of practice, uh -huh. the necessity of putting into your life. So, I mean, as far as balance, you've kind of also found this balance too right now in, in your life in, in essence, right? Where you're able to work on yourself and then you're, you know, going to school and kind of furthering, you know, your, your knowledge base. Uh, how's that going? Is it a, I guess a, a gotta be a really cool balance between two sides. Is it? Yeah. How's, how are you finding the university experience? College. All these years. College experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. Yeah. It's good. Um, recently came off a semester doing fundamentals of finance and it was fun. Oh, that's cool. Really enjoyed it. Doing yeah. introduction to marketing this semester. So far so good. It seems like there's going to be a lot of assignments, but um, not school. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm working on a certificate in business administration and at the moment, I'm just doing school because it keeps me busy. Yeah, like being sure. on disability. I, we didn't even touch on that. I'm on disability now. Right. Been on disability for five years, and got all this spare time. So why not fill it with school? Right, keeps me get, gives me a reason to get out of bed. Keeps keeps me focused. And I am learning some practical skills. Yeah. In terms of like how the world works, because you know we do live in a free market economy and learning the nitty gritty details of how businesses work is it's nice to have that perspective right yeah oh, very cool no and i just look at you as someone too who really thrives off of gaining knowledge whatever that may look like oh, yeah. right you know oh, yeah. so you're like that sponge you know so i yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you're kind of putting putting that to practice right so uh listen i you know i i'm super proud of of how far you've come it's you know i i think for me it's um, yeah, it's one of the more, more profound journeys that I have seen. Just like I said, just to see you, you now physically, like, you know, just moving around without, you know, when I first met you, you had, you had walkers and, and, you know, mobility was, it was a real problem. And I see you without any aids and that's been a while now that you've been walking around without any aids. That's a, it's been that's about a, huge, a year. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's a huge feat, you know, and that's a, you know, what a, what a, an amazing, uh, you know, journey of rehabilitation, you know, so I'm, I'm really cool, you know, really, you know, proud to see that you're walking around and, and, uh, you know, just doing so well, at least even physically. Right. But, you know, also that you've kind of, you know, continued this journey of recovery and, you know, and, and, you know, kind of your, your, you know, 
being with your with your family and you know being a, a active role model for your for your daughter i yeah i'm really proud of you man so it's thank you like i said i i i think your journey is a really uh really awesome one i'm glad that you come on and talk about that and i think you did a really great job at explaining some of these other interventions because that's something that we don't hear a ton is really diving into what these other interventions look like and how to put into practice so i think that's really enlightening for everybody so yeah anyways Glad to have you, man, and uh, I hope it's not snowing too hard for, for your trek home. Uh, you know, like it shows snow. some dedication coming in here. Yeah, that's right. You're from Ottawa. What that's right. Snow is my We're jam. soft here on the West Coast. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, man, just, just really glad having you in. It's great to see you. Thanks for coming and chatting. Thanks, Blake. Great. Okay, thank you so much to Scott for coming on to this program. Just want to recognize that this is a deeply personal and, and traumatic story that, that uh, Scott was sharing so I just always appreciate people having the courage to come on and, and you know, tell their story. And uh, hopefully it really was impactful for people. Um, I also, you know, just want to appreciate the fact that Scott came on with some really tangible interventions and kind of dove into a little bit about what he did and the work that he did uh, to achieve his recovery. I think that's really important. It's something that we haven't heard a lot of. We've heard of stories and, and you know, uh, somebody you know, can touch upon their work, but actually to dive in a little bit on some of these interventions, CBT practices and, and, you know, different, um, different programs out there that can really help, um, somebody in their recovery. I think it's, it's really important, you know, recovery is not a one size fits all model. And I think that people really have to dig in to figure out what's going to work for them. And a lot of times that takes a lot of work and, and trying out some new things. So Scott's a great example of somebody who took this seriously and, found those interventions and supports that worked for him. So thanks again for Scott uh, coming on. That was a really, uh, you know, proud one for me as well. It's so great to see how far he's come in his recovery. And as far as this program, we will be back in a couple of weeks with a, another great story. Uh, I do have a few more podcasts coming up before we take a break um, for the rest of the year until September. Um, but uh, we'll keep them coming uh, for the unforeseeable future here. And uh, thanks so much for tuning in. Please tell people to listen to this podcast and uh, you know spread the word. Recovery is possible and we want to get these stories out there. So uh, until then, my name is Blake Anderson. We will see you in a couple weeks.